This is Positively Farming Media. Hello, my gardening friends, and welcome back to the Just Grow Something podcast. This week, we're talking about how to use less water in the garden. We're still in drought conditions here in West Central Missouri. It was a hard gardening year for sure. But I also know when I lived in Northern California that water conservation was always a topic of discussion, and that was 30 years ago. Many of you live in areas where water is just naturally scarce and restrictions are always in place. So how do we as gardeners balance a need to grow our own food, and in some instances food for others, with the need to use less of a very precious resource? We'll talk about tips, tricks, and techniques to keep your garden growing with less water input from the gardener. And on that same note, the question of the week involves choosing drought-tolerant varieties of plants and whether or not that benefit has any drawbacks, specifically how well the plant is then able to tolerate very wet conditions. So if your garden is full of drought-tolerant plants and you're suddenly inundated with several days of rain, are you sunk? And in the DRL, it's serious freeze protection, the moth, and a flashback to the 80s. Let's dig in. Hey, I'm Karen. I started gardening years ago in a small corner of my suburban backyard, then moved to a five-acre lot outside city limits and expanded that garden to half an acre. What started as a way to provide for my family turned into a love for digging in the dirt and providing for others. Slowly, my husband and I built our small homestead into a 40-acre market farm through lots of trial and error and successes and failures. Eventually, I went back to school to get my degree in horticulture, and along the way, I discovered there is power in food. So I want to share everything I've learned with as many people as possible. This podcast is all about helping you become a better gardener and a better eater. Whether you're a seasoned gardener or have never grown a thing in your life, I want to give you the knowledge you need to get the biggest and best harvest you can. So settle in, grab that garden journal, and get ready to just grow something. So we'll start this week with the DRL. What am I doing? Right now, it's freeze protection in the garden. A week ago Thursday, it was almost 80 degrees out. And then by Friday night into Saturday morning, we had hit an overnight low of uh, the mid-20s. And it was snowing Saturday morning when I was getting ready to run a half marathon. And, uh, And then later on in the weekend, we ended up with an overnight low of 17 So I know with our Midwest weird weather that our temperatures are going to bounce back up again. Maybe not nearly as high as they were before, but they're certainly going to get back up above that freezing level. And I was not prepared yet to completely harvest everything out of the raised beds. And so I went into the greenhouse and I pulled all of the the stuff that certainly wasn't going to continue going on from here on out, like the peppers and the tomatoes and the cucumbers. It wasn't worth the effort to continue trying to get those to grow and produce. But the stuff that's in the raised beds out front, I have a ton of spinach out there. There's Napa cabbage still. There's some baby kale and some arugula and some little lettuces. And so I wanted to make sure those were protected because I wasn't ready to pull all of those yet. So I harvested some for us and then just made sure to do uh, a double layer of frost cloth tucked into those individual beds. And then I have those little mini greenhouses that I bought earlier in the season. And I popped those over top of the ones that were most sensitive. So the baby lettuces and the baby kale. I've not done it with the kale before, but what I noticed the last time when we had a hard freeze early on in the season 
the baby kale or the kale that I planted is a variety of lacinato kale, a dinosaur kale, and it seemed to be more sensitive to the hard freeze than say a winter boar kale. So I went ahead and covered that up just to keep it going for a little bit while longer. And so far so good. Um, we're supposed to have about 10 days or maybe 14 days total of these overnight lows in the mid to upper teens and then the midday highs of like mm, upper 20s, low 30s. But then after the weekend passes, we're supposed to be back up into the 40s again with overnight lows well above freezing. And so I'll be able to pull those row covers off and let those plants continue doing their thing until I think we're really going to have a final long stretch. And then I'll just go ahead and let them go. I'll, I'll harvest them all and let them go dormant. And all those plants will come back in the spring once the temperatures start to warm back up again. So I'll just mulch them really, really well at that point and just let them kind of go to bed for the season. And then they'll come back up um, in the spring. What am I reading? I have just started How to Tell a Story, The Essential Guide to Memorable Storytelling from The Moth. This is part of my Positively Farming Media Group um, book club for this week. And so if you're not familiar with The Moth, which I was not, it is a nonprofit group. They're based in New York City, and they are absolutely dedicated to what they consider to be the art and the craft of storytelling. So they were founded in the late 1990s. Um, they have all kinds of different uh, theme-based storytelling events across the U.S. now and abroad, and they have a weekly podcast. They have a national um, public radio show, the Moth Radio Hour. They have these moth storytelling slams all around the country, similar to the old poetry slams where they allow people to come out and, and tell their stories. So this book is essentially a guide to how to tell your own personal stories in a way that's more impactful. And so, you know, I mean, we all have stories and storytelling is something that has been really important in civilization since the beginning of civilization. I'm just in the beginning chapters of this book, but I already find just the background history of the organization itself and its goals really, really fascinating. So I'll leave a link in the show notes to this book in case you're interested in reading it also. And I am sure that my copy of uh, Where the Crawdads Sing is eyeballing me with disdain right now from my to-read pile while I start a whole new book and I haven't even cracked that one open. But that's okay. It'll be sitting there waiting for me when I get done with this one. And, uh, and what am I listening to? Right now, it is the Spotify playlist 80s pop. It's just a cool flashback for me as like a 70s and 80s kid for, you know, to listen to all this music. And I actually use it during my races because the songs are just fun and they're upbeat and, and they've got a great beat to them. And it's just a fun, it's a fun playlist to listen to. So I'll leave a link to that in the show notes if you, if you want to give it a listen. All right. So the question of the week, this comes out of the Just Grow Something Gardening Friends Facebook group. If you are not in there, I highly encourage you to jump on Facebook and get in there. Just answer the questions and we'll go ahead and let you in. There are some fantastic questions being asked and answered over there in that group. And we also are sharing images of our gardens and what's going on and fun memes and that sort of thing. I, I totally encourage you to get, to get in there. So the question is, when selecting seeds for purchase this winter, I'm looking at the prospect of selecting some more drought-tolerant varieties. 
However, I live in an area where rain seems to be feast or famine. I can have several inches over a week or, like the summer of 2022, none all summer long. If I select a drought-tolerant variety, will this equate to a direct inability to tolerate high amounts of moisture? I love this question because it actually takes some forethought into planning the garden, and it's actually a valid concern. The answer is no, not necessarily. Most vegetable plants don't like having their feet wet all the time anyway, and certain species are definitely more susceptible to root rot from excess water than others. Think about your basil or fruit trees. But this sort of phenomenon is generally not variety specific though, meaning this aversion to being exposed to too much water is more about the group of plants in that species in general and not one variety in particular. So what we're actually looking for here in these, in these plants is drought resistance. Um, the person who asked the question said drought tolerance. We're actually talking about drought resistance here. So breeding for drought resistance has more to do with selecting for traits that reduce the impact of dehydration on the plant. So plant breeders are looking for mechanisms that do one of three things. They either escape, avoid, or tolerate this, this drought or dehydration. So how can the plant escape drought altogether? How can it avoid drought damage? How can it tolerate drought conditions? The combination of avoidance and tolerance traits is what equals what they consider to be drought resistance. So breeders are looking for things like a faster growth rate, which would mean that the plant would escape being caught in drought conditions. They may look for deeper root systems, which means that the plant could avoid those drought conditions by being able to reach further into the soil for the water. Or they look for plants that will germinate and grow and continue to photosynthesize at a productive rate despite low water conditions, which shows that they are drought tolerant. So combination of traits for avoidance and tolerance equals resistance. So having these traits doesn't negatively impact the plant's water usage when hydration is available, even when it's in excess. So be confident that if you're planting drought-resistant plants in your garden, you're not going to be negatively impacted if you do get a good amount of rainfall. So let's move on from that question and talk about how we can use less water overall in our garden. I'm going to go through these really in no particular order because they can all be used separately or all together to make your garden productive even when you're in a drought or you're under water restrictions or you just really want to conserve water. These are mostly basic steps, a lot of which we should be doing in our garden anyway, and that really don't require anything fancy, but there are some options and techniques that are a little bit more involved, so we'll talk about each one of them as we go. So the first thing to talk about is mulch. Yeah, you knew I was going to go there, so let's just start right off the bat with that. A good layer of mulch is going to increase moisture retention. There's less surface area of the soil exposed to the elements, so there's less evaporation that's going to happen, especially when it gets really hot or it's very windy. So not only is this going to keep the moisture where it belongs, it means that when you do need to water, those plants are going to need less of it. 
Mulch also acts as an insulator, so you're keeping the roots at a more consistent temperature. Fewer temperature fluctuations um, means less stress, and it means the plant is able to regulate its other processes more effectively, which means it's going to use less water. Plus, plants that are less stressed um, about resources in general are healthier plants and they're more productive. And then mulch is also going to help keep those weeds at bay. Those weeds, when they pop up, are going to steal moisture from your soil that your plants could be using, which means you'll have to water more frequently. So mulch is your friend. And speaking of those weeds, that point number two, keep a weed-free garden. That competition from the weeds is not only stealing water from your garden plants, but it's also stealing other resources that the plant needs to be healthy. Remember, we talked about if the, the plant is less stressed, it's going to, to be better able to regulate its own processes. So keeping weeds at a minimum also means less watering, especially when combined with point number three. And that is properly space your plants. Planting your plants too far apart is just as bad as planting them too close together too wide and there's much more space for evaporation without the plants kind of coming together and creating a canopy to shade over that soil. Plus, plants that are given too much room can also consume too many resources. That's bad for the plant and it's also bad for the soil. Now, if you've got them too close together, that means you have too many plants that are fighting for the same water resources. Now, there's absolutely flexibility in how close you plant because interplanting actually helps plants share resources and helps keep those weeds at bay. But overcrowding can lead to a need for more water and not less. So use those interplanting and succession planting techniques, which can help shade the ground from the heat and the wind and will help choke out the weeds while allowing plants to use their water resources in tandem with each other but just don't get them too close to each other where you're just causing more stress. Now, the next thing is getting your soil texture right. And this, this might not be think, something that you would think about right off the bat, but proper soil preparation is absolutely essential with any new planting, but keeping an eye on your soil texture as you move through the seasons is also important. Um, and this is especially important when it comes to conserving moisture. You want well-draining soil, but you don't want it to drain too quickly. So with heavy clay, this can mean incorporating grit and, and you know, to open the soil up and, and also adding organic matter to enrich it and to keep those soil pores open. This enables the soil to hold on to water without becoming waterlogged, which is a huge problem usually here in the Midwest. Now, if you're on light or sandy soil, organic matter added in acts in the same way, but in this instance, it's helping with water retention. So how do you know what to do? You can do a soil texture test. This is different from a soil test where we're checking for the nutrients and such. Um, you essentially, and I'm going to link to something in the show notes that will tell you how to do this, but essentially you're going to dig up a little soil from the garden and you put it in a mason jar and you add water and you let it settle and you see how the soil separates. Then you use this visual separation as a sort of guide to determine what percentage of your soil is sand, silt, or clay. And then you use something called the soil texture triangle. You compare your results to the triangle and it's going to give you the type of soil that you have. 
This helps you make better decisions about what to add to your soil to ensure the best water retention without water logging your plants. Like I said, I will leave a link in the show notes that shows you how to do this, this jar test and then also has the soil texture triangle there for you so it can walk you through and you can figure out what to do with your soil to make it better at either draining or retaining water. So the next thing is watering properly. Okay, the first thing is, you know, part of this is is know how much water your garden has already gotten through rainfall by making sure you have a rain gauge of some sort. Do not water on a schedule. Water when necessary. Most plants need about an inch or 2.5 centimeters of water about every 10 days or so. So don't just put a timer on for your plants to be watered every single day and and not pay attention to how much water or rain you've actually gotten. Not only are you wasting water, but you're forcing your plants to become reliant on that water system. Their roots are going to be more shallow. They're going to be less tolerant of any dry conditions than if you only give them what they need when it's absolutely necessary. Keep this in mind because there's a technique that I'm going to talk about here later on in the episode that's going to talk more about this. And the second part of this is getting water to the plants where they need it. If you can manage a soaker hose or low-lying sprinklers that deliver the water to the plant's root zones, you'll have less chance of the water evaporating before the plants can use it. Overhead sprinklers are much, much less efficient, and they can actually lose as much as 80% of the water they emit because it doesn't get soaked into the root zone before it just evaporates. And don't think when I say root zone, I mean right at the base of the plant. For plants like lettuce, yeah, that's where the root zone is. But for larger plants like tomatoes, the root zone is much further out from the base of the plant after only a few weeks of them being in the ground. So adjust your watering system and your soaker or your emitter placement accordingly as the season goes on. Don't just set it up and walk away. And then if you hand water... Be accurate about where you're running the water. Soak it deep at the root zone depending on what plants that you're watering. Create a reservoir or a depression in the ground around the plant or alongside your rows to prevent the water from running away, regardless of what system you're using. It's better to give plants a really good thorough soaking much less frequently than it is to water a little bit very often. Right? It's, it's no good just to make the soil damp. It has to be thoroughly soaked for the water to travel down to the roots. Remember, the root zone of most of our garden plants is between 4 and 6 inches, and some are as deep as 24 inches or 60 centimeters. So deeper, less frequent waterings is much better for the plants and will mean that you use much less water. And then, of course, water in the morning when the weather is cooler, if you can, or very, very late in the day just to reduce that evaporation loss. And if you need to, update your irrigation. Right? This can mean buying new soaker hoses to be more accurate and ditching your old sprinklers. Um, this can mean burying PVC pipes into your beds or hoses with, um, with holes in them under the soil line to water into those to get them a better delivery to the plant roots. Or you can even use Oyas. Oyas are unglazed clay or terracotta pots, and they have this sort of bottle or, or tapered shape to them. 
and they are buried in the ground with the top of it, the neck of it, exposed just above the soil surface. And then they're filled with water and capped off. And they act as subsurface irrigation for your plants. The cool thing about Oyas is the plant roots grow toward and around the pots. And those roots only pull moisture, they wick the moisture out of those pots when they're needed. So none of the water is ever wasted. Essentially, these Oyas will eliminate any runoff or evaporation. And this is different than those tricks where you see people using like plastic water bottles with little pinprick holes in them to slowly irrigate their plants from underneath the soil. Yeah, that can be effective, but that just allows the water to flow more slowly. Oyas rely on the plants themselves to draw the water out, so there's no chance of overwatering, and the plants only use what they need. These are especially great for smaller garden beds. And then another thing you can do is add a rain barrel. If it's legal to do so in your area, rain barrels can be a great way to capture rainwater that runs off of hardscape surfaces and that would otherwise be wasted and use it later on in your garden when you need it. I'm not going to go into depth here about rain barrels, but there are 101 ways to set up and use a rain barrel system to inexpensive homemade ones all the way up to like fancy expensive systems. No matter how you do it, you're, you're not only saving rainwater from going into storm drains or into road gullies and being wasted, you're also then eventually using less commercial water for your garden. And it's rainwater. It's not municipally treated water, and so that's better for your plants anyway. So the next trick um, harkens back to our question of the week. Choose drought-resistant plants. Now, this can be a sort of multi-level approach here. There are some plant families that just naturally require less water to be productive. Um, some of this is, is due to one of the things that we talked about in the question of the week, escape, avoidance, and tolerance, right? So the first one is escape. Fast maturing crops that set a crop before a drought sets in or ones that just require less moisture to do so are great for using less water in the garden. These are things like fast-maturing snap beans or early pole beans and peas. Um, most herbs fall into this category too. Cow peas, garlic, onions, those all do really well without much water. So those are great options. The next thing that we see is plants that have the avoidance trait. Plants that maybe have very deep roots or that are moisture scavengers. These include things, surprisingly, like tomatoes, squash, and melons. They establish deep root systems very quickly, and they can draw moisture from the deeper soil long after the surface soil has become dry. So as long as they have adequate moisture early on, they can scavenge water during the really dry periods, and they can avoid damage from drought. And we can slow that effect down even more by providing a really deep layer of mulch to further prevent the moisture loss. And then there's actual tolerance to drought. So plants that come from a native environment that is very dry and arid will naturally do better with very little water. This includes things like sweet potatoes, hot peppers, Swiss chard, chickpeas, okra, mustard greens, and arugula. So as you're planting your garden, look for plants that are native to the Mediterranean, Chile, 
the American Southwest, the Southwest portion of South Africa, and Southern and Western Australia. These areas generally get most of their rainfall in the cooler parts of the year and little to no rain during the hottest parts of their summer. Plants that are indigenous to these areas are naturally adapted to growing with very little water and still being productive. And then you can look for varieties of plants that have been specifically bred to grow in drought conditions. Plant breeders are always working on improvements to varieties, and this is one of them. You can also work toward having your own drought-resistant varieties by selecting for those traits when saving seeds from your own garden. We talked about that in the seed-saving episode, so I will link to that in the show notes. But by choosing plants that have experienced drought, survived it, and still produced well for you, and saving the seeds from the best specimens from that harvest, you can continue those genes and be able to develop your own drought-tolerant varieties specific to your garden. Now, another really good trick for using less water is to group the plants in your garden by their water needs. So if you can manage to keep plants together that need less water and group together the ones that need more water, you can focus the water that you do use on that one area and then just use less water overall. So plants that typically don't do well without sufficient moisture are usually the ones that we grow in the cooler shoulder seasons anyway. So things like lettuce, spinach, all the large brassicas, cabbage, broccoli, cauliflower, um, turnips, shallow rooted crops like sweet corn. So if it's something that's going to require a good amount of moisture, group them all together and then be sure that they're properly mulched and then water according to when they need it. And then you'll be able to use only what's necessary. So now there is one final way to grow your garden using very little water. And it's a technique that we use extensively here to grow our large groups of crops out in the field without any irrigation and how we grow them in our raised beds near the house where we do have water available, but we just choose not to use it unless it's absolutely necessary. It's taken years of trial and error to get it right, and I swear by it, and now I'm gonna share it with you. You guys know I've been using Elm Dirt's products in our greenhouse and gardens all summer long with fantastic results, but now I've realized all my houseplants I've neglected all gardening season are in desperate need of being potted up. Just in time, Elm Dirt has announced their newest product, their all-purpose potting mix. This mix is a blend of organic ingredients crafted to create a living potting soil. Not only does it contain their ancient soil, a blend of worm castings along with four of the most bioactive soil enhancing ingredients, it also contains no peat moss. You guys know I'm super concerned about the environmental impact of peat moss and Elm Dirt has chosen to use pit moss for water retention instead. Pit moss is made from organic recycled paper and is a sustainable alternative to peat moss, which makes my little sustainable heart very happy. Elm Dirt is offering Just Grow Something gardening friends a little something special to get you started in using their products. Go to justgrowsomethingpodcast.com slash dirt and use the code JUSTGROW at checkout to get a free bottle of their bloom juice with any purchase. That's justgrowsomethingpodcast.com slash dirt with code JUSTGROW at checkout for a free bottle of bloom juice with any purchase from Elm Dirt.
So what do I do to avoid using water in my garden at all during the growing season and still get a good harvest from my plants? I acclimate my seedlings to be drought tolerant. I force my plants to be used to drought conditions before they even go out into my garden. It doesn't matter if I started them from seed or I ordered them in as plugs or I purchased them from a nursery. Nothing gets planted into the fields or into my raised beds without being essentially abused. (laughs) This goes way back to the beginning of the planting season when we're hardening off our plants or acclimating them to our growing environment before putting them into their final home in our garden. Most gardeners will give their plants a few days to get used to being in the full sun and the outside breezes before planting them and just calling it good. For most of them, this means their plants are getting watered daily up until they go into the garden. They get watered in when they get planted, and then they get watered consistently as they're settling in, and then they get watered regularly as the season progresses. But because we don't have irrigation in our fields and we have to rely on good old Mother Nature to do the watering for us, I had to develop some techniques for getting those plants ready for the sometimes harsh conditions before they make it out there. These techniques just naturally carried over into my raised bed gardens, and it's worked phenomenally well in keeping me from having to water. So during a normal year, I don't water those beds at all. During a drought year like this past summer, they were watered probably every two weeks, which was significantly less than most other gardeners in our area. So how do I do this? As I'm hardening my plants off, I'm allowing them to dry out completely between waterings, regardless of the size container they're in. I don't care if they're in a four pack, a plug tray, or a four inch pot. I let them get to the point where they're slightly wilting before I water them again. And then I soak them thoroughly. And then I do it again. The larger the container, the better this works because it's more like the condition they'll face outside. But I do this no matter what size container they're in. And I continue to do this as they acclimate to outside conditions. So as I'm putting them out in the sun more frequently and getting them used to the winds and all that kind of stuff, I'm letting them dry out and then I'm soaking them. I also try to water them from the bottom up if possible by setting them in trays and allowing the water to soak up from the roots rather than watering from the top down. So this ensures that the roots are going deeper into the pots and they're not staying at the soil surface. Now, when I'm ready to transplant them, it's a multi-step process. First, I soak the plants to be sure the roots are completely saturated and the cells of the plants are fully hydrated. When I dig my holes to transplant, I add whatever compost or amendments I'm going to add to the hole, and then I fill the hole with water. I do this regardless of if it's in the field or if it's in a planter. Then I put the plant in the hole, I fill it in with compost or the garden soil, and then immediately cover it with a thick layer of mulch. Now, the plant has enough nutrients and water in the immediate vicinity of the root zone to keep it going for at least 10 days or so while it gets settled in, which is more water than has been made available to it all at once for like the preceding month. And this allows it to make its transition with very little stress. Now, once it's used up all those resources, it will have settled enough for those roots to be able to seek out moisture present in the soil further out than its current root zone. And since it's already used to getting to the wilting point and not suffering irreversible damage, 
it's not going to try to conserve its energy. It's going to immediately start to seek out nutrients and spread its roots. If, however, I had watered that plant consistently right up to the time I transplanted it, the moment it began to dry out, that plant would start to conserve its resources. This would affect the plant's growth and ultimately affect its yield. This is a type of cellular memory. It's a conditioning, just the same way that athletes condition their bodies to respond to the stress of their sport in a specific way. Endurance athletes condition their bodies to respond to stress by putting it through that stress under controlled conditions. When those conditions occur later on in a more uncontrolled environment, the body doesn't try to conserve its resources. It just keeps pushing forward because it's been trained and the systems know that eventually it will get what it needs because it's been there before. Plant systems will do the same thing. And all I'm doing is conditioning these plants to do hard things by putting them through those things on a regular basis when I can control the environment they're in. So when I don't have control over an environment, the plants can handle it. I mean, there's probably a much better scientific way to explain all of this, but you get the gist of what I'm saying. Don't baby your plants. If you want them to be better able to handle the stress of not having enough water, get them used to not having enough water. Then combine that with heavy layers of mulch and choosing the right varieties and all the other things that we've talked about, and you can use much less water in your garden and still have a great yield. I hope that all of this gives you a starting point in how to plan for using less water in your garden as you move into the next growing season. With the way our weather patterns are changing, it only makes sense to try to make our gardens as resilient as possible. And water is the number one thing that can make or break your plants. The less reliant we are on a resource that's becoming more and more scarce, I think the better off we'll be. So until next time, my gardening friends, keep on cultivating that dream garden and we'll talk again soon. You just finished another episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. For more information about today's topic, head on over to justgrowsomethingpodcast.com for all the episodes, show notes, blog posts, discount codes, and more. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. You can also head to Facebook and join a community of other gardeners asking questions and sharing their experiences in the Just Grow Something Gardening Friends Facebook group. And if you want to support this show even further, head to patreon.com slash justgrowsomething to find out how. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep learning, keep growing, and we'll talk again soon. But by choosing plants who have, who have, doesn't negatively impact the water's water, the water's water usage, <laughs> that's not going to work.